and the first five verses. And it's maybe actually having been listening to Fiona and her testimony of what God's been, been teaching her in the past few months, it's not a big step to this reading at all. So Habakkuk chapter 2. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Amen. Father God, we want to be honest before you. Um, that we struggle to understand you, we struggle to understand your ways, we struggle to understand what you do do, what you don't do, struggling to understand your word. And Lord, over the course of this past year, year and a half or so, we'll have struggled with a great many things, a great many of the uh, challenging realities of uh, the world we've been living in. So we come this morning uh, perhaps more readily able to understand uh, the place in which Habakkuk is in himself. Holy Spirit, I just ask that you might uh, speak to us through these words. Lord, you might speak into our hearts, into our souls, where we are uh, in these moments. And that, Lord, you might breathe life uh, through these words and that you might speak through me, I pray, for your glory and your name's sake, I ask it. Amen. Uh, just before we sort of come to that, um, I was going to give a bit of a COVID update, but I, I won't do that this week, actually. I'll, I'll leave it to next week. Um, but what I will say is you, you'll sort of find out the front sort of afterwards. Um, you'll probably struggle to see because it's, it's very small, some little sort of uh, poker chips. Um, I'd love for you to take one of these away with you, and I'll, I'll explain it next week for you. Um, it's not our building fund plan, um, so, and it has no cash value, so please don't go try to sort of uh, do that for us, however well-meaning. I'll explain it for you next week, but uh, like I say, there'll be a bit of a sort of COVID update, but I'll do it then because, uh, you know, there's people who are out with the kids and everything else as well, and it'd be good for them to, uh, to hear. If you can turn up that passage there from Habakkuk, you'll find that really helpful, I think, to follow along. Um, if you missed us last week where we sort of began this little series, one of the things we've uh, said about Habakkuk is that this has shown this sort of uh, faith and frustration, both God's salvation and his grace, and yet also his judgment. And how on earth do we attempt to sort of understand those things? How on earth do we sort of hold them together. In chapter 1 up to chapter 2 verse 1 we saw that struggle, that struggle of in the midst of God's patience 
sometimes wanting his justice. And Habakkuk crying out and saying, you know, why is it that you're not acting? Here are the people of God who are not behaving like the people of God. Why don't you act? And then you see the struggle of God says he's going to act, and he's going to act in a way that they can't understand or wrap their hearts or their heads around at all, that I'm going to act through this people Babylon who are even more sinful, who are going to overtake and overrun you. And now the problem for Habakkuk is, well, in the midst of your justice, where's your grace? And you, like me, might know something of struggling with that frustration. And that frustration that Habakkuk has is, and here's where Habakkuk is a slightly different uh, book compared to the other prophets, that usually we hear the prophets, the messengers of God, the ones who come and they hear the word of God and speak it to the people of God. We usually hear what they say from God to the people. Habakkuk is different because we see something of the process and the pain and the reality of being a prophet of God that here he is with God. Here he is potentially even in the temple saying, God, I'm hearing nothing back. How long will I cry for justice? And you won't give it. And yet, we saw that Habakkuk waits to hear back from God. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he'll say to me and what I'll answer concerning my complaint. And we see, secondly, that the hope is that God answers that struggle between justice and grace himself. So now we get an answer to Habakkuk's cry, but it's maybe not the answer that he was waiting on. So I want you to think, just as we sort of begin to get into this passage for yourself there for a few moments, and maybe even with the person next to you, if you've come with someone this morning, is to think, when have you cried out to God for him to deliver? And how did he answer that for you? And did it surprise you in any way? We've heard Habakkuk's call, and now here is God's answer in verses 1 to 3. He's told us here, he's been very honest. So it's probably one of the most honest sort of verses of Scripture that you get from a human being throughout the course of the Bible, that Habakkuk says, you know, I'll wait to hear from you and then what I will say back. And it's the reality that, you know, most of our sort of, uh, what do you want to call them, discussions, disagreements, arguments with one another, that that's the reality of it. You're half listening, half thinking what it is you're going to say back when you get the answer back or the answer you anticipate back. And Habakkuk is honest enough to say, well, I'm, I'm going to listen so that I can sort of know what I'm going to say back to you. He says what I'll answer concerning my complaint here. But the thing for Habakkuk is, you know, bear with him and and think about the difficult position that he's in. Habakkuk is thinking, I think, not just of himself. What is he going to answer back to God with what God says to him? But what is he supposed to say to the people? Habakkuk could not have been the only person sat there struggling with these realities. This faith and yet frustration. Desiring for God's justice and yet also his grace. And always feeling as though in whatever moment that you're in that it's not the thing that you wanted. 
heard that quote from Luther last week, that whatsoever God does, we don't like. In the, in the moment that we want justice, he's giving patience and we don't like it. In the moment that we want grace, he's giving his justice and we don't like it. He couldn't have been the only one, though. He couldn't have been the only one confused by God's inactivity and confused by what he did say in his response. And the Lord answered me, we hear in verse 2. Now God does answer. And yet, of course, we don't know when he answers. And that's pretty important. You think about it in Habakkuk's shoes. How long did he have to wait to get this answer? We know from his complaint in the previous chapter, chapter 1, verse 2, how long shall I cry for help and you will not answer? We know that Habakkuk waited at some uh, point for God's answer that comes in verses 5 to 11. He's had a period of waiting then where he's been crying out and then God has answered. And then he's called out again to God and there's been another period of waiting. But we don't know how long that that is. Although we know it's long enough that by the time he's crying out now to God, Babylon are in ascendancy, they're in power. Whereas when he had first started crying out, they were not yet. So much so that when God said that the Babylonians would be uh, risen up to take over them, that that would be a surprising thing to hear. That would not make sense at the moment. He says, if I had said, would you have got it? And he tells him, write the vision, write the revelation, make it plain on tablets. There's a message here to be both remembered and shared, isn't there? Write the vision, write the revelation down. It's not truly speaking a vision. Again, this is where uh, the story of Habakkuk here is slightly different. For many of the prophets, the wisdom, the word that's revealed from God comes with a vision that's enacted before them. They see something. Habakkuk doesn't see anything, truly speaking. And what's revealed here as a revelation kind of feels more confusing. Until God answers again here. He tells him, write down the vision on tablets. This is a vision, a revelation that is of significance this is to be put down on the tablets and there's a deliberate link here to the tablets of the ten commandments this is a vision of such significance and weight it is to be recorded to be seen and to be shared and this is a vision that we'll see as we go along that is of such significance and weight. This is not a vision that will lie on tablets in a lockup somewhere outside of London like the Edstone of four or five years ago, whenever it was. You remember Ed Miliband's sort of promises that went on this giant sort of plinth, only for him to not be elected because aside anything else, he couldn't eat a bacon sandwich sensibly. And if you can't do that and get pictured doing that, you've really no chance of you. But there we are, somewhere in some lockup outside of London is the Edstone somewhere. Never to be seen again, never to be shared. This is not like that. This is a revelation of weight 
and significance to be recorded. Prophets in other, on other occasions are told to record visions. Isaiah is told to record the vision on a scroll. Jeremiah is told to record some of his visions on a tablet. Habakkuk, though, is to write on the tablets. There's a deliberate play with the language. And that seems strange, because when you look at the vision that Habakkuk is given here, it's not very long. It's not really requiring tablets because of its length. But arguably, the vision that God is talking about here to be recorded is just literally these couple of sentences. In fact, you'd think it barely requires being written down. Surely it's so short you could remember it. But there's something significant about this vision. Israel had previously been told to inscribe the Ten Commandments on the tablets very plainly. One commentator, Palmer Robertson, writes this. He says, these features apparently intend to recall the tablets of the covenant enacted at Sinai. This vision now revealed to Habakkuk compares in significance with the original giving of the law of Moses. Perhaps with good reason, Jewish tradition declared that the 613 laws of the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Bible, have been reduced to one by Habakkuk. This is a vision of true significance. But there's something, isn't there, and we know this in life, there's something about that commitment of putting something into writing, isn't there? That you can't distance yourself from it should it prove to be wrong because you had put it down in writing beforehand. He's told, make it plain so he may run who reads it. Make it plain so the message can be spread through messengers. And there's two notes I want you to sort of pick up about the vision here. Firstly, that it's eschatological. That's a fancy word to say that it's got a future fulfillment. It's thinking about the end, the eschaton, eschatological words about the end. It's eschatological. It's got a future fulfillment. But secondly, it's certain. Told here, verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. Habakkuk has had to wait already, and he will have to wait some more before he sees a fulfillment. There's going to be a wait to see God's salvation. But when? When will they see it? Habakkuk must write chapter 1 after faithful King Josiah's reign had ended. That was in 609 BC. That allowed in Jehoiakim, a faithless king in, who really was propped up by the Egyptian empire and put in as a sort of puppet uh, ruler. But he's probably writing this before 605 BC, when Babylon takes dominance over that region by winning the Battle of Karshemish. Uh, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, and the Persians and Medes combined, who've become the Babylonians, all sort of fight together in a conflict that uh, engulfs that sort of region of the world. And Babylon managed to outflank the others and to take dominance at that battle. And yet, whilst Babylon rises for a time, by 539 BC, Cyrus the Persian king actually destroys Babylon itself. So that Babylon actually were only dominant for 70 years. So that God 
categorically does, historically uh, speaking, deliver his people. And there's when we see it happen. But this vision is looking even further into the future. And so the challenge here is, how do we keep faith when we're not seeing God's provision? And yet, we find that there's not so much different for the people then as for us now. In fact, this is always the way. Keeping faith when we don't see yet God's provision. Hebrews 11 runs through a list of heroes and the way in which they all looked to a future salvation from God. It says of Noah, being warned of events as yet unseen, built an ark. It's easy to build an ark when you see the clouds coming, but Noah's called to build the ark in, in the time of a heat wave that Abraham went out not knowing where he was going, called to a city that he'd not seen, that he did not know. The writer to Hebrews summarizes it in verse 13, that these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. None of them had actually laid hands on what it was that God was fully promising. They'd seen but a glimpse on the horizon. They were keeping faith whilst they didn't have everything there with them yet. Yet this is a vision here that yearns for the end. Look at verse 3 there. It hastens to the end. It yearns for the end. It will not lie. God desires for this deliverance to happen too, just as Habakkuk and the people do. And we see that this is fulfilled in 539 when, uh, the, when the Babylonian Empire falls and Babylon as a city itself falls to Cyrus and Persia. But there's a more significant fulfillment than this ahead. And yet it's certain to come. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. All that said... It doesn't mean it's easy to hold on to God's word when you don't see it happening. We see Habakkuk's call and God's answer. And then next we see salvation through faith. It's this great inspirational quote from uh, the philosopher Iron Man. I had my eyes opened. I came to realize that I had more to offer this world than just blowing things up. The answer that God gives is a surprise because I think what they hope for, their greatest hope, is that God will blow some things up. What salvation looks like to them in that moment is, come blow up the Babylonians. Then we'll be all right. And yet the answer that God gives is so far greater and looking so far further forward than I think they could have possibly conceived. And now we see the message that God has said to be made plain. Behold, we're told. And here is the center point of this little book coming up now. 
the center point of the book, and it is the vision to be made plain, is here in this verse, verse 4. And there's a contrast here and a conflict of natures here. You'll see that. There's two different groups here. On the one hand, there's the proud, and on the other, there's those of faith. So who is this message for? That's important, isn't it? With any message that's given, a message is said to be made plain and to be given to people to be spread far and wide. Who is the message for? This is a message just as much for those of the people of Israel as it is for the Babylonians. There is specific judgment coming upon the Babylonians. We'll read of that in chapter 2, verses 6 to 20. We'll look at that next week. But this message here is universal and true for all. So it begins. Let's look at those words there together. The proud, the puffed up, the bloated. Behold, his soul is puffed up, is not upright within him but the righteous shall live by his faith. The word there, actually, uh, it's, it's, this is one of those verses that's difficult to translate. Here in the ESV, it's put it, behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him. Um, actually, in the original language, it sort of starts off with the proud. Because the word the proud literally means the puffed up, the bloated one. So you can see what they're trying to say but actually it starts off really by dramatically introducing his one group and it's going to contrast them with another group here. And there's something about the way they're described here, of being proud, that describes what they're like. They're puffed up. They're bloated. There's this harmful disconnect that's grown here in their perception of their own righteousness and performance and the reality. Habakkuk has written in chapter 1, about the unrighteousness of the people of God. And yet there's this disconnect between reality and perception that they believe themselves to be righteous. But why this contrast between the proud and the righteous, the proud and those of faith? That might seem like a strange contrast. You know, if you look back just a few verses into chapter 1, if you have uh, your Bible there in front of you, you can do that, and you see some of the sort of ways in which the wickedness of the people is described, it might seem a strange contrast to go between proud and faith. You might think that it would be a more sensible kind of contrast to be the righteous and the wicked. That would seem to make more sense, wouldn't it? Because the wickedness is spelt out in very graphic terms. Remember the question that the vision is answering. How do we make sense of the election of God, the calling of God, of a special and particular people through whom he works through and whom he blesses and the all the families of the earth are blessed through the election of God, the justice of God, and the grace of God in the light of human sinfulness. So the contrast is between two different answers that we might find to how the problem of our unrighteousness is addressed. Pride and faith. Pride that we might sort of say in the light of unrighteousness and the light of sinfulness amongst humanity. Well, we can do it. The ability is there. We have the capability. 
If we work harder, we can change things. We are, after all, inherently good, but sometimes we slip up. So how do we address sin then in that uh, worldview? Well, it's all really about better education, different leaders, uh, cancelling bad apples, because most of us really are good, but there's one or two who are bad. And if we can just shame wrong beliefs and behaviours and ideas, then we can do it. Pride. Faith instead gives an altogether different answer. It says, actually, he must do it. Our hard work, sadly, is not enough to change things. That's the root of the problem, that we can work as hard as we like, but it will never be enough. We will never get far enough on our own work. We are inherently bad, not good. The problem is not so much that we learn sin, but that it is latent within us from the beginning, that it is all too natural. Jesus will say, it's not what you put into your mouth that makes you unclean, it's what comes from within. Anger, jealousy, pride, bitterness, lust, they all come from within. Nobody ever has to teach their child any of those things. I have never had to sit any of my three boys down and ever encourage them, boys, I really need you to know that you need to say no to me more. It comes out. I have never had to teach them how to lie. They have an uncanny lack, uh, knack sorry, of being able to do it. And part of that is their DNA. Comes from me. But part of it is that it's everybody. You don't have to teach those things. They're there. You have to teach those things out, or at least try to teach those things to contain them. You don't have to put them in there. The problem is we are inherently bad. So what hope is there? Well, the only hope can possibly be an external, universal, autonomous force that substantially changes me unilaterally. That's a lot of big words. He must do it, not me. It's two entirely different ways of approaching that fundamental question. The Babylonians here have their pride and their strength and their victories and their power, and don't miss how they would always wrap up that being somehow in their gods too. The ones who are victorious, military speaking, it must be their gods being stronger, being with them. And yet for the Israelites, there's also this sense of pride in their morality, in their religious observance, in their purity, albeit that's disconnected from the reality of their actual performance. The proud, their soul is not upright, we're told. The one who sees themselves with self-righteousness and this sort of self-exaltation is not right. There's a soul sickness within them, a willful blindness to sin, a dislocation and a disconnection from God and their need of him. So there's two possible outworkings for them with this, isn't there? We see the result of this pride, this sort of soul sickness, outworked in two ways. Firstly, that you find that you're under such opposition from enemies without 
because you presumed you were strong enough to go alone. You thought you didn't need God anymore. Despite all throughout the conquest, it being said the battle is the Lord's. It is his land he's giving you. It is not yours. Your tenants. I'm the landholder. You're under such opposition because you presumed you could go it alone. But you're drowning in sin within because you think you're too good to need God. I wonder if you've known those feelings. Pride is the original sin of Satan. And it's at root of every single sin ever since. Pride. But, and there's some good news coming. The mountaintop of this book comes in this next sentence. The bad news is really bad. But the good news is far better than you could possibly have dreamt of. But the righteous shall live by faith. The antidote to pride is faith. Belief not in myself, but in God. The righteous, the one declared righteous, and it's a legal word, an illegal term that's given here. The one who is declared righteous as the one declared righteous by a judge in a court case. Not always behaving righteous, no, but the one declared righteous. It's a religious term that's being used here, not just an ethical one. So that Leon Morris, another commentator, writes of it, that it takes its origin in the forensic, the legal sphere, and makes its home in the law of God, the one who is declared now righteous by God's law. So how should we understand this next sentence then? The righteous shall live by his faith. How is someone declared righteous that's important isn't it to know that well faith here is the activity it's the behavior of the righteous faith is the behavior of the righteous it's the activity the declaration of righteousness is the object of our faith so that we're not declared righteous because of the strength of our faith We're to have faith in the certainty of God's declaration. You are not declared righteous because of faith. By faith, you trust that God has declared you righteous. Again, Palmer Robertson, the commentator, says that it explains the way by which the gift of life continues to be received rather than the way by which the sinner is declared righteous. Righteous. It's describing the activity, not the source of your confidence. And now there is two more outworkings. Faith in God's word, in his declaration of salvation for the righteous, should have two effects. Firstly, that you trust God. That he will deliver you from the temporary judgment of the Babylonians. And secondly, that Israel will be fixed as a nation by turning to God again and being made righteous. This is a message just as relevant for future generations as it is for Habakkuk and his generation there. To turn 
from this inflated sense of pride that thinks there's no need of salvation to see that you need God's salvation. And to turn, on the other hand, from a sort of wounded pride that thinks there's no hope of salvation for me and to trust that God brings his salvation through faith. And then lastly, we see the way of the wicked in verse 5. How is it that some may miss the way that brings life? What is it that keeps them from life? The proud. Verse 5 here. Wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. The Babylonians had a notorious drinking culture. You see it in Belshazzar's court on the night that the city is captured. You can read of it in Daniel 5. and It describes the ruin and the folly that they come to through it. And in this sort of intoxication of their riches and their comfort, they have this deluded sense of self-confidence and security. How is alcohol a traitor here? Well, one, it gives that false sense of confidence, doesn't it, there? But another way it does it is that it's at the moments that actually your guard is down, your inhibitions slip, and a bit of truth comes out. Alcohol is a traitor to them. At that moment, you see something real slip out. And what slips out here for them is that there's this fullness of their rebellion from God is seen in these moments of unguarded candor. He's an arrogant man who's never at rest. The proud are marked by that sort of lack of contentment and arrogance, aren't they? You see that in the Babylonians, where their empire will be rapidly undone by their own arrogance, believing they're unbeatable. It's the story of every empire that's ever been, isn't it? His greed is wide as shell, as wide as the grave, we're told. Like death, he is never enough. Controlled by greed to get more and more. Destroyed by their desires and determination. We live in a world that knows the problem of greed and yet all too often actually wants to repackage greed sometimes as good. You hear the famous speech in the film Wall Street from Gordon Gecko. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. Greed actually destroys and ruins and they're unable to find satisfaction in what they actually have and so it starts to become clear that God is beginning now to directly address the Babylonians specifically as Habakkuk has been asking for he gathers for himself all nations and and collects as his own all peoples in fact it could be translated he takes captive all nations all peoples as his own they're empire builders And there's a pattern that we see repeated, isn't there? That greed and ambition of empire, which eventually undoes itself completely. Babylon may look so strong now, 
But look at how their unrighteousness will tear themselves apart from within. Babylon may look so strong now, but look how quickly they'll be undone when they've served their purpose for which God raised them for. I doubtless say that many believers over a couple of millennia since reading this have probably seen and sensed something of their own context as they've read it, as empires have risen and ascended and dominated and ruined and maybe found some measure of hope in thinking this will not be always. Babylon may look strong now, but its ruin is certain. Babylon has only risen because God allowed it to, for a time, for his purposes, but they will end. And we'll see much more of that next week in that specific judgment of Babylon in verses 6 to 20. But what are we to take from this as we come to an end? It is about so much more than the immediate circumstances for Judah. If I could perhaps direct your attention back just a couple of verses. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. The original Old Testament, of course, is written in Hebrews, the native language of the uh, authors that, that pen those books. Of course, as history progresses, actually, you know, Greek becomes sort of the uh, language of the world for a time. And so uh, the Hebrew is translated into Greek into a document called the Septuagint, the 70. It's a collection of the Old Testament books and some others as well, translated from the Hebrew to the Greek. The Septuagint translation of this verse, or commentator notes, has modified the thrust of Habakkuk's prophecy by focusing the vision on the coming of a person. What he means is, instead of it reading, as we have here, if the vision should tarry, if the vision should wait, then waits for it, for her. The Septuagint reads, if he tarry, wait for him. It's why a number of rabbis actually in Jewish tradition translated it this way. And it may well be why the author of the book of Hebrews writes himself in Hebrews 10 verse 37, yet a little while and the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. Many people feel he's quoting something of a contemporary hymn that drew from Habakkuk directly. God's salvation comes through a person who comes and through whom we're made right. Jesus comes, God in flesh, to bring salvation to us by giving himself up to death in our place. So that through the death of God, the just, the holy, the perfect one, in Christ, on behalf of all our sin and shame, we would find life because his limitless perfection is a light that overcomes and overwhelms the darkness of our sin. We're saved from sin. We're declared righteous through the work of Christ on the cross. This is the message that Paul takes up in Romans. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For in it, 
the power of God is revealed both for the Jew and also for the Greek. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, uh, from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Quoting Habakkuk 2, verse 4. That Paul sees that this promise is rooted in and finds its fulfillment in Jesus in the gospel. That we are declared righteous because a righteousness is revealed from God. Luther writes of struggling with these verses. He says, I hated that word, righteousness of God, which according to the use and custom of all the teachers, I'd been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or active righteousness, as they call it, with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. Do you see what he's saying? He says, as I read that, that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. What he is hearing is, God reveals his righteousness by punishing the unrighteous. The righteous shall live by faith, which is none of you. And I hated it, he says. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, he says, I felt I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I couldn't believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemy, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus, I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. And yet listen to what happens for him. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. If the problem is what we do with the unrighteousness of humanity, and there's two answers. One is pride is to say we can do it. We need to work harder. We need to be educated more. We need to shame people out of things. And then the other says that actually it's, it's faith. Pride tells us that we can do it. Experience tells us we haven't and we won't and we can't. And we wind up hopeless. We wind up feeling that all this can possibly be saying that the righteous shall live by faith is that we have no hope. On the other hand, as bad as the bad news is that you, you can't just work your way out of this. You, you can't just try a bit harder. 
do a bit better, be a bit more. You, you can't. Instead, what it offers is God's own righteousness. You're not saved by the strength of your faith. That's the activity. The source of your faith is the righteousness of Jesus. You're saved because of the reality that in place of your sin and shame that deserves death, that deserves justice being served, in your place, Jesus himself has been spent and in exchange for all of that sin and darkness and shame and rebellion, Jesus' perfection is given. You are saved because the righteousness of God is revealed, is granted to you, is gifted to you. You are not righteous in and of yourself. You will not be until you, on that day, meet him in the air and are made like him, for you will see him as he is. You'll not be righteous fully until then. But until that time, you're declared righteous. As though you have Jesus' record, not yours. That is hope. The only hope that God himself would spend himself to save us. To save the very worst of sinners. Because you will never, as many mistakes as you may make, you will never outmatch the perfection of his righteousness. No matter how deep and how wide the record of your guilt and failings, you'll never outstrip his righteousness. Sinful to think so. You'll never be able to outmatch it. No matter how loud sin may get for you, no matter how loud the accusations of Satan, his righteousness goes one louder. The righteous shall live by faith. The one who is by faith righteous through Christ shall live. This is a vision to be recorded on the tablets. That this is comparable to those Ten Commandments. This now above all else is the heartbeat of the gospel. That by faith in what Jesus has done for you, you are made righteous. So that this morning, my encouragement to you as we go is not to focus on the strength of your faith. Not to either on the one hand be falsely encouraged because you feel as though you're on the mountaintop with that faith. Uh, yes, I'm really righteous now because I'm really believing it. Or not to be in the depths of despair because you know what, you're not sure how much faith you have just now but to root your confidence and trust in what Jesus has done to root your faith in Jesus declaration for you that it is finished let's pray father god
we're all too aware we live in such a broken world and we see that in so many ways. We see it in so many ways now. Broken, sinful, unjust, at times oppressive systems and realities in which we live and the, the way in which our world is just not right. And we know it and we see it and we know that it's in history too. And yet, Lord, we also know that it's easy to look out there and to think that the problem is everybody else, but we know just as well that it's us too. And we know all too well our own failings, our own imperfections, our own guilt and shame of things we wish we could correct, we wish we could do right. Father, I thank you that the hope is that we can be made righteous through you. Jesus, I thank you that you have been willing to come to live and to die, to bear the brunt of that conflict and that challenge between both justice and grace, that you've actually felt the full force and weight of the law upon you, though never having done wrong, the one who knew no sin being made sin for us, that we might receive your righteousness. And Father, this morning I pray if there's those who have not experienced that and known that yet, that, Lord, you will bring that to life in us as uh, you did here even for Luther, wrestling and struggling and straining to try to understand. Lord, that you would reveal the hope of your declaration of righteousness for us and the hope of salvation through it for those who may not know it yet. And Lord, for those of us who do, but need reminding and need encouraging and maybe faith is waning and it feels like the flame is a bit dim. Help us to be encouraged in knowing it's not on us working up a sense of momentum and atmosphere for ourselves, but it's us turning our eyes once again to Christ and knowing and believing that what you have done, Lord Jesus, is enough. And that your declaration is true. It is finished for us. We are forgiven and made right in you. Holy Spirit, I pray, please impress that deeply upon our hearts and souls. That we would know and find our strength in you. That we would know that you receive us in that way. Not just other people. Other people that we look at and admire and think they've got things way more together than us. But for us, with our struggles, our weaknesses, our temptations and failings, you say that for us. We thank you that there is such hope in you in a world that is so desperate for hope. So, Spirit, I pray that you would just impress that upon our hearts and help us, Lord, to encourage one another to look to you and to find our strength and confidence in you together. Amen. Uh, we're going to sing one more song together.
Why don't we close from these words from 2 Corinthians 13 and 14, 13 verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Uh, it's wonderful that you've been able to join us this morning.